Well, friends, I am Taylor, and I am the pastor here, blessed beyond imagination to be pastoring y'all, and um, so glad if you're visiting that you're here with us. You're welcome to our family that Christ has made this motley crew, um, bound by his blood. Yeah, we're in verse 2 alone today, so um, Bubba read our sermon text, uh, which was verses 1 and 2, but I'm just preaching on verse 2. Is If you if you were here last week, you remember I preached on verse 1. So we're, we're taking it slowly, but uh, next week will be 3 and 4. We'll finish our, ad, our three-week Advent series there, really focusing on the new creation that Christ brings us into in the time that we find ourselves in. But we're just looking at verse 2 today, and um, with that, let me just give you a little... Um, a little piece of Martin Luther's mind. He said, uh, I think I've said this before, but he said that he lived in light of two days, two days alone, this day and that day. And by this day, he meant today, which Jesus goes on to say is the year of the Lord's favor for us. And that day, and he guesses as to what that day is, it's judgment day. Uh, The day when Christ will return, not in weakness as he came the first time, but in power to crush all who oppose God. So living in light of this day and that day really gives us a good framework for this verse, verse 2, where the Messiah is going to come, Isaiah says. And Isaiah writes this text, 700 years he prophesies this before Messiah comes, before Christ comes and is born in Bethlehem. Uh, He comes to proclaim, verse 2, the year of the Lord's favor. That's point one. This day. And the day of vengeance of our God. That's point two that day, and to comfort all who mourn. We'll finish briefly with looking at comfort, and that'll sort of give us an entree into into our finish next week um, as Christ comes to make all things new. So this day and that day. um, So this text the Jews knew was presaging a Messiah, and uh, they were looking for... um, God's favor, the year of God's favor, but also the day of his vengeance. And really, probably, hey, it's going to look like him conquering our enemies and taking out vengeance on our enemies. And uh, in, the, in the case of those Jews that Jesus came to in his day, um, that probably would have been the Romans. God's going to crush the Romans. He's going to take out his vengeance on those sinners. But Jesus gets up, and we've, we've talked through this a few times. And if you were at Heights a couple weeks ago, I think Brandon mentioned it, because he preached the same text, but... Jesus gets up and he announces his public ministry with this prophecy. And he says this in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he closes the scroll and he sits down. You notice where he stopped. It's like he pressed the pause button on this prophecy right after he, I've come to bring God's favor. Pause. What's the next clause? What about God's vengeance? Isn't this messianic figure also coming to bring God's vengeance? Did Isaiah get it wrong in his prophecy? Well, no. But if we can think about this prophecy as two great mountains that we're seeing, let's say we're in Colorado and we're looking at, or the Tetons, we're looking at two really big mountains. Um, the day, the year of God's favor and the day of his vengeance are like those two mountains. And if we're very far away from the mountains, it looks like they're just one after the other. 
But actually, as Christ approaches and as this day of God's favor approaches, and then he steps in and says, hey, that day of God's favor is now. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm fulfilling it. I'm bringing God's favor. He presses pause and doesn't annihilate the second mountain, but helps us see that the second mountain is a distance away now that we've gotten close to the first one. Maybe, maybe hundreds of miles away. And for us, years and years and years away. So Jesus comes and says, I'm, I'm fulfilling both of these words in Isaiah. Because n- not a single jot or tittle of God's word will not be fulfilled. And Jesus came to fulfill all of it. And so he says, I've come to fulfill both, but as he approaches and says, I'm bringing God's favor, and today is that day, we realize the day of judgment he's delayed as he's come to absorb God's vengeance for us. Um, So Christ's coming brings us two days, today and tomorrow. Today and then that day, judgment day. Today he brings God's favor. Tomorrow, though, friends, God's wrath. So run to him today and be saved because tomorrow will be too late is I think the message that I want to bring to you from this text this morning. So three points. This day, that day, and then comfort. Let's talk about this day first. Um, So every commentator agrees. If you look back with me, if you have your Bible or it's on the screen, if you look back with me at verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Messiah came to do. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor Every commentator agrees this is Juba, what they call Jubilee language. Um, great, you say. What is that? What is that? Well, um, the year of Jubilee that this text was referring to and then that Christ comes in and says, I'm bringing that year to bear now. That's this day. Um, it was a year talked about in Leviticus, the third book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I had to do my, I had to run through there. Uh, Leviticus chapter 25, the law, talks about the year of Jubilee. And it says that every seventh year, the people and the land are to rest from work. So the servants, the masters, the animals, the land itself is to lie fallow. It's not to be plowed. And God says, if you follow this law, I will bless you with a bumper crop the year before. I'll give you everything you need, but rest. Everyone is to take a rest every seven days to remember how God created everything, and then every seven years as well. So these cycles of rest. Um, and work is not a product of the curse, but toil, arduous, painful toil is. It's what our sin has made of, of work. Um, so this, this, this Sabbath, this year of rest was an inbreaking. It was a reminder of creation, but it was also an inbreaking of extended rest and a reminder to God's people, hey, I'm coming to give you rest to the full. This toil, this pain, it's not going to last forever. So that was um, established in Leviticus 25 and commanded, but then the year of Jubilee went beyond that. It was like the, the year of Sabbath, every seven-year rest on steroids. So it's probably never been described like that before. It's a bit irreverent, but it was. So the year of Jubilee was every seventh seven. Um, so every seventh Sabbath year, so on every 49th year, God says, every debt that any Israelite has, they're released from it. Every person that's in prison, out of prison. Um, 
And there's just complete what Christ preaches here that Isaiah says he's going to fulfill. Freedom to the prisoner, release to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Christ says that year of Jubilee, that seventh seven, the seven is a, it's, it's the divine number. It's a number for fullness and perfection. So Christ is saying, I'm coming to bring complete rest, complete rest from pain and, and toil and hardship and evil and sin, as we know. Um, I'm coming to bring you into that. And as he says, not just, uh, hey, he doesn't just say, I'm going to show you how this is fulfilled and then close the scroll. He says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm here. I'm fulfilling this thing. So Christ is saying, I've come to bring you into the perfect rest. Um, but as we kind of just talked on, this isn't just, hey, stop working. It's a liberty that actually points back to the fact that there was, there was a problem after God made everything perfect and after he put us, man and woman, in charge of everything. We, we sinned, we rebelled against God, and because everything was under our care, everything cracked, everything fell within creation. And Jesus is saying something, and we're going to touch on this much more next week, but he's saying not just I'm going to release, I'm going to bring in the year of Jubilee by seeing people released from physical infirmities, uh, from demonization. It's the first thing he does after this text in Luke is he goes and he heals Peter's mother-in-law um, of, a, of a fever that's probably going to take her life, and then, he, and then he expels demons. So he's going around, and he's, he's actually embodying this text, but he's actually saying, I'm coming to bring a rest and a renewal of the brokenness that's racking creation. So it's Jubilee language, and Christ just steps up to the plate and says, yeah, that's me. I'm coming to do something so much bigger than you ever realized was even spoken of in Leviticus. The thing about the, uh, the year of Jubilee, too, is that it was to be enacted on Yom Kippur. That was the day that, it was, that all, everything, all the slaves were to be released from their debts. And all the land, like if I lost my land through, because I owed someone and I gave them my land that was my inheritance as an Israelite, I got that land back. Well, on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement for sin, for the sins of the nation, of God's people, Israel, this was to be enacted, this year of Jubilee. And Jesus says, yeah, again, that year's here. I'm coming to bring it. And as we know, this side of the cross, it's not just the fact that he's expelling demons and that he's touching people and they're healed. That is a sign of what he's doing, of the king is here. I'm coming to bring liberty. But then he goes in the larger context of Luke, what? At the end of the book, what does he go do? What, what is everything driving toward? He came to die. It's like he told his disciples over and over again, I came to die, I came to die. And so he's pointing uh, toward his atonement that he will make for us on the cross as he will die as a substitute for our sins. And that day, or that year rather, uh, of Jubilee, he's saying, that's here, and it's just, it's going to last until I come back. So now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of God's favor. So Messiah, he came, he came to save us into God's favor, but also from God's. So he came to save us into something, into God's favor, but also from God's just wrath against our sins and against God's vengeance. Um, how does Christ press the pause button on God's vengeance? How does he skip over it, really? 
Well, he does that by absorbing, as I think I've said, by absorbing the vengeance that's prophesied against God's enemies into himself on the cross when he became sin for anyone who would trust in him. He absorbs that vengeance into himself, and he gives us therein his enemies, formerly, a chance to repent and to run to him in faith and to be completely cleansed, completely freed, completely set at liberty, completely to have God's favor all over us, not through our merit, but through his. Because he literally is our year of jubilee. He himself brings us into that. One commentator writes this. uh, He says, the thought of vengeance, when Jesus proclaims this text, the thought of vengeance is just put to the side. And this is what Christmas is about, friends. This is why the angels proclaimed peace in the sky. Because Christ is our peace, and he came to take God's vengeance upon himself and to proclaim release for a time. The psalmist somewhere calls God our sun and our shield. What does a shield do? Think about that metaphor for a minute. A shield protects the one who bears it from the blow of the weapon that's coming at him, from the assault coming at him. And it protects, it protects the person by absorbing the blow. And that's exactly, Christ fulfills that word of God to us, doesn't he? He is, he is our shield. He protects us from the just penalty that our sin deserves. He took it on the cross. Um, how can God make all things new if evil remains, though? He has to extinguish it to renew all things. He can't just let evil hide in pockets and let people that have chosen not to bow the knee and to surrender to continue. He has made a way to end evil by putting forward, Paul says in Romans 3, by putting forward his son as a wrath-bearer, a propitiation a wrath bearer for our sins. If we reject that way that God has given us through his precious son of his love, what is there left for us but the vengeance of the living God? Because he has come to make all things new and evil must be ended. So that's, that's this day. But then in the text, the next clause is that day. So Jesus erases the second message, the vengeance of God that he does come to proclaim, but only for a while. So this is Peter's message. It's sort of hidden away, but it's Peter's message. um, When he gets up to preach kind of the first church sermon, the first sermon that we find in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, 36 and following, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, this is 50 days after Christ is risen, Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, what? Whom you crucified. So who's being offered this mercy? Who's being extended this invitation? Those who actually killed God himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And through our evil, God made that way for our salvation. And Peter just proclaims this. That's what we herald at Christmas. That's the good news. Now then, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? (laughs) 
Imagine yourself one who crucified Christ because we did. We weren't there, but we participated because it was our sin that he became, right? It was our sin. For the forgiveness of sins. Covered over, done away with, paid for, finished. Are you, are you hanging on to a sin? Are you hanging on to, are you, are you struggling with guilt, perceived guilt before God? Friend, if you have run to Christ, that is a lie from Satan. He has finished the work. You are forgiven of your sins. So this Peter proclaims. And then verse 40, and with many other words, wish I could have heard that sermon, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. The book of Acts um, is like a Luke 2.0. So Luke writes his gospel and it's about Jesus. And then he writes the next book and he picks up right where he left off. You know, a few days later, there are the disciples huddled in a room doing what Jesus told them to, praying, waiting on the Holy Spirit. So it's Luke's second book. It's meant to be read together with, with the gospel about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. What? Those two words that I love, for us. Did Christ live for himself? No, he lived for us. His life counts for you if you have faith in him, if you trust in him. Did he die for himself? He didn't need to die for himself. He died for us. Did he rise for himself to new life? Not at all. He rose for us. So the life and death and resurrection of Christ and ascension of Christ, that's how Acts starts out, right? Luke 2.0. And we often think of Acts as, okay, Luke is about Jesus. Acts is about the church. Yes, but really the way that Luke starts his book out helps us see another way to see the book of Acts, Luke 2.0. And how does Luke, start his, how does Luke start the book of Acts? He starts it by saying, I have written to you, Theophilus, the guy he wrote Luke to, at the beginning of Luke, Luke 1.1, 1, 1, he says, I'm writing to you, Theophilus. He says, I've written to you about the, the things that Jesus began to do and say. That's how he summarizes the book of Luke. What's he implying at the beginning of his Luke 2.0? I'm writing to you in this book about the things Jesus continues to do and say. How? How does the book start? Through his spirit whom he gives to people who believe in him. Jesus multiplies out by, by reigning in heaven over all creation, which he has just won as a man. Finally, Dominion, the thing that Adam lost for all of us, Christ gained by his life and death for those who believe in him. And he ascends to the throne, the nerve center of the cosmos, the control center of everything. And he sends us his spirit and he says, go little Christs, multiply. I was only in one place, now just go and preach and see people born again, moved from death to life. So the messages of Acts, yes, it's the church, but it's also this truth. Hey, enemies of God, actually you didn't kill Jesus. Well, you did, but he didn't stay dead. He's alive. Um, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. That beautiful British Southern English voice played by Obi-Wan, none other than Obi-Wan Kenobi in the original and best Star Wars film, to Darth Vader, and then what does Darth do? You know, and he strikes him down. Kind of close to what Christ is saying here through the book of Acts. 
This is my plan for world domination. More biblically, okay, if we want to move from Obi-Wan. I rose, I'm no longer dead but alive and reigning. This is what the message of the book of Acts teaches us. My church is proof of that. What are we but the body of Christ? And what is he but our head? Because they are doing what I did and greater things. Because they are my body and have my spirit in them and act and speak as I did while on earth. Only there are thousands of them now and they're multiplying. Remember the movie Gremlins? I can't believe I'm bringing this up in a sermon. 80s movie, all you guys are watching 90s movies growing up. I was watching Gremlins. Actually, I didn't because my mom wouldn't let me, but I know about it. (laughs) Mommy! I know, she's not here today. She's in the air right now, coming back from the Navy game. Gremlins, you cut them in half and they multiply, right? That's what the church is doing in the book of Acts. The more it's persecuted, the more it multiplies. Isn't that what happened with Jesus? Exact same thing. It's the economy of the cross. You kill me? coming back stronger than ever. I'm going to accomplish the salvation of anyone who comes to me, and I'm going to recreate the cosmos. Go ahead. It's my plan anyway. Um, My friend preached on this point once, and um, he brought up the movie The Professional. Again, I think I've seen part of it, but he said uh, it's this bad dude who's charged with, uh, I think, uh, maybe, maybe that's the bodyguard, I don't know, protecting some girl. But either way, his enemies kill him, or they think they have, and then the last part of the movie is him just wreaking vent. People, his enemies start just dying, like getting knocked off one by one. I guess you could go Braveheart at the same time. I'm on a movie roll. Um, you know, his enemies think that he's dead, but then, but then those enemies start getting just knocked off left and right. You know, falling through the roof, um, getting kicked out of their beds, you know, thrown off of a building. Um, and so the message there is, Okay, he's not dead. That's really a strong, strong message in the book of Acts. Not a good idea to be an enemy of God. Not a winning side. Not. Flee, because vengeance is coming. Jesus' body is growing. Now is the year of his favor. Now is the year of jubilee, but it ain't going to last forever. So get We see a generation after Christ in 70 AD, we see, I mean, ultimately, what's that day that Martin Luther was talking about? What is the day of vengeance? It's judgment day. It's when Christ returns in power to vanquish his enemies. But we see a little sort of foreshadowing of that in 70 AD. If you know your history, the Roman general Titus comes in and really for about four years, Rome has been at the gates of Jerusalem. And when they came to the gates of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it was during Passover. So Jerusalem was swollen like a tick. Swollen to uh, way over twice its normal population. So it was, uh, scholars estimate through the works of Josephus and others, it was at a million plus, this ancient city of Jerusalem. And it was um, barricaded and surrounded by Roman armies. And Jesus He predicted all this in his, what is referred to as Olivet Discourses in the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, He says, look, armies are going to surround Jerusalem, and when they do, get out. And he tells this to his followers. So actually, history records that when armies surrounded Jerusalem in about 65 AD, um, the Christians who had God's word and had the prophecy of Christ left the city, and they fled, most of them, to a city across the Jordan called Pella, and they were safe. But those that didn't trust in Jesus' prophecy stayed 
and there were hundreds of thousands of them. And Jesus says this, by the time Titus got in to the city, he was in no good mood. No good mood, because the Jews held out so long. And many of his people died in the assault. But when he finally got in, what does Jesus say is going to happen? Woe to you on that day. Cannibalism before that, and after that, the Romans crucified so many people in Jerusalem that they ran out of wood. They ran out of trees. They crucified thousands along the road leading out of Jerusalem. Luke 19, 41 and following. And when he drew near and saw the city, he being Jesus, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. There's that word, peace. It's what Christ came to bring us. But now they are hidden from you, from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. Titus raised the temple. What did Jesus say? Not a single stone will be left on another. And that came true. You and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know that now is the year of the Lord's favor. Now, and I came to bring it. I am the only way to the Father. So this is a foretaste of what Christ will bring bodily when he comes again. His second coming is like that second mountain that I talked about at the start. He came in weakness the first time, first mountain. Next time, not weakness. Power, war horse, sword out of his mouth to vanquish all opposition. And that day will make 70 AD look like a child's playground, friends. So that's this day and that's that day. And finally, what does he say? How does he end the verse? How does Isaiah end the verse? To comfort. What's Messiah going to do? He's going to comfort all who mourn. It's a sweet it's a sweet ending. At least it seems sweet. Until you stop and think about it for five seconds like I did this week. Because um, Jesus did bring comfort, didn't he? It's easy to see how he realized that. He brought comfort. He touched people's blind eyes and they opened their eyes. And, just... and I heard a story just yesterday about how that's still going on today. We as a church friends believe that Christ still heals today. Not just blind eyes, longer limbs, people being raised from the dead around the world. But uh, delivers us here, heals us here as well, inside and out. He's still doing these things through his body. There's no scriptural warrant, I believe, to say that that time has ended. I, I don't see it, and I haven't been convinced. But that's where I am, and that's where we're headed, and that's what we want to pursue as a church. Um, so he did come to bring comfort, but if you think about it, actually, this is, it's not just a sweet reassuring claim. It's a ginormous. I had the word gigantic, but I just said ginormous. It's a ginormous. It's a huge claim. Think about that phrase again. He didn't say to comfort those who mourn. He said to comfort all who mourn. It's that word all that's monumental. Think of, just think for a second about what's involved in being able to make that kind of a claim with integrity. How does Jesus start the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5? 
Blessed are those who mourn. What's the assurance? For they shall be comforted. All who mourn will be comforted. Think about the power involved in being able to make good on that claim. Think about all the mourning. Not just in your life now. That's enough for me to think about. In this room, in this city, in the world, for all of history, those who mourn, all of them, will, will be comforted. Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to do that. And I think, I, I feel like I preach this text that I'm about to preach every week, but the verse in, in, at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, I think it's verse 4 or 5, it's talking about the new creation that he's come to bring, that he's inaugurated, that he started, right? But we're in this in-between state. He will consummate it. He will finish it. He will bring it fully to bear when he returns. And we're going to talk about that next week much more as we finish our Advent time and what that means for us as a church and what we, as people who bring this new creation to bear in this broken world, what we want to be doing, how we want to be rolling out justice and mercy in Christ's name. We'll talk much more about that next week, but at the end of the Bible, Jesus says this, right? I will, at that time, wipe away every tear from their eyes, from the eyes of my people. I will wipe away, not just tears, every tear. Again, it's that all-encompassing promise. Every bit of pain, I'm going to make good, every bit. There's going to be consolation, tender, personal, intimate, one-on-one. I know your name, and only I know the name that I'm giving you. I know you better than anyone. That's the interpretation of that symbol. And I'm going to come near, and I'm just going to wipe away. I'm going to comfort every single thing that needs comforting in your whole life, in your whole life. And then we're going to start the party, and it's just not going to end. Okay? What did we sing earlier? As far as the curse is found, I'm going to roll it all back. That is a hope and a peace that we can bank on this Advent season and this Christmas. What does this do? Total comfort. Total favor. Vengeance is coming. It has to. I'm just. But I absorb God's vengeance for you. Run to me. Preach it from the mountaintops. To steal a phrase from Walt Whitman, sound your barbaric yelp from the rooftops of the world. Why would we be ashamed? I am every day. God help me. God help me. Let us be a people who proclaim this with our lips, with our fingers, with what we do and what we say, with how we treat people. What does this do for us? One, it validates our mourning. Not our mourning like, not the night, but the morning, but our mourning with a you. Our, our sadness and our grief over evil and sin and brokenness. Messiah doesn't chastise us for mourning and say, hey, you're headed to heaven. Stop that crying, Sally. Rather, he comes to comfort us as if to say, yes, you have reason for your mourning. Mourn. That's why I've come, to stop it. It's not right, and I'm going to make it right. I'm going to end it. And I'm coming to give comfort for it. And it gives us hope. So it validates our mourning, but it also gives us hope that we're not going to mourn forever. So we can cry our eyes out now knowing that it's not going to be like this forever. We have a solid hope. So Jesus makes possible this first message, the year of favor, and he forestalls the second, the day of vengeance. The time of salvation is now. Our time is short, friends. For, for each of us, God's vengeance is, you know, if we are outside of Christ, God's vengeance isn't just, it's not just when he returns. We don't necessarily have, I don't know, none of us know when that is. It could be tomorrow, right? 
but it's the day that we breathe our last. I could have a bubble in my brain. I could fall dead right now. I'm not in control of that. I don't know. Neither do you. God's vengeance is just that far away. It's time to flee to Christ, and it's time just to live in his peace. Live in his peace, to abide in his peace. So Christ comes to bring us two days, today and tomorrow. Today he brings God's favor, tomorrow God's wrath. Run to him today. Tomorrow it's going to be too too late. Briefly, a few points of application, and then let me close this. So believing in a God of vengeance does a few things. It humbles us, okay? It humble. Believing in a God of vengeance humbles us. Why? I deserved that. Who am I to try to mete out vengeance on anyone? Christ absorbed what I deserve from God, that vengeance, for me. I want to be an extender of the mercy and the favor instead. It also steadies us knowing, guys, we don't have to repay wrong. Why? Is God going to let things go? Not at all. He is going to make things right. He's going to crush opposition. He's going to end evil. Everything will be dealt with. Every sin, friend, listen to me, every sin will be paid for. Every sin that's ever committed will be perfectly paid for, either by Christ, for anyone who trusts in him and flees to him, or by the perpetrator. God is just. God is a God of vengeance and righteousness. He will make good. We can leave vengeance to him. He will repay this makes us people of peace. We can actually go to our enemies and just extend peace. You know, the, the Colt 45 was called the peacemaker, the, you know, the, the pistol, the, the revolver, the peacemaker. Isn't that a great, um, I love that. Peace has to be made, and it takes a certain amount of violence. I mean, we endure violence, even a lot of times for us, it's just interpersonal. We're, we're not in danger yet of having heads chopped off or going to prison even, although that day might come sooner than we might like, but we, when we forgive and extend peace in the face of our enemies, in the face of ridicule, in the face of opposition, in the face of those who reject us in Christ, we endure um, violence. But to absorb that, because Christ has extended us mercy and says, now, today, this year is the year of the Lord's favor. Come on. Um, we, we know that God has made a way, and so we, we can extend that to others. It sets us free to be peacemakers. How to land. So, I'm going to save all this for next week. It's going to be a 20-minute sermon. Pray for me. We're going to have next week, I might as well announce it now. So, I believe we're sticking with this. We're going to do a, uh, just a very much, since we don't celebrate on the 24th together, we'll be at the heights for that. Those of you who can make it, the height's at 5 p.m. on the 24th of December. Ours is going to be the 20th, next week, this time. Um, it's going to be our third and final Advent, and, and it's going to, we're really just going to, it's going to be even more Christmassy, if I can use that word. Um, and so it's, it's going to be shorter, because we want to bring the kids in. We want it to just be, we're all about family worship as it is, but we really want next week to be a time where everyone can come in, our whole body, because, I mean, half of us are out serving right now. So come in, bring the kids. Um, I'll preach a short message on how Christ brings us into this new creation that we read about in 3 and 4 and what that looks like for us. So a lot of it will be application. So I'm going to skip that this week and, and just close this in prayer, and then uh, we'll go on to celebrate communion together as we feed on Christ. Okay, let me pray. Father, I thank you. 
I thank you for giving us your son who has brought us into the year of your favor. May we proclaim that with every fiber of our being. May we proclaim peace and goodwill toward men, even toward those who have wronged us as we have wronged you, but you have extended your arms out to us through the cross, invited us straight into your family, straight into being reconciled, straight into total forgiveness of sins, straight into peace. May we be a people of peace who marinate in your peace, dwell in your peace, revel in your peace, and extend that to a weary world. Uh, We love you. We thank you, Jesus, for being our peace. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.